Welcome to the Faith Life Fellowship Podcast with Dr. Scott Forrest. In today's message, Dr. Forrest presents part five of his teaching, Tools of Prayer for America. And they didn't seem to have any awareness of the approaching darkness. So I had this sense of urgency in my spirit that it was way past time to transition from celebrating July 4th to praying for our country. So I asked the Lord when I woke up from the dream why I had such an intense sense of urgency in my spirit. And this is what I heard in response. Jesus is the light of the world, but America is the conveyor of that light to the nations. As America goes, so goes the world. Therefore, pray for America. Amen? That's pretty profound words there. So let me encourage you as we begin today. We've been talking a lot about the darkness every time I uh, you know, intro this series. Uh, whichever episode, I'm, I always talk about the darkness. Okay? Uh, so uh, I thought I would encourage you with something other than darkness. Amen? <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Four and a half years later, after I had this dream, I'm happy to report to you that a remnant of the Church of America has risen in the midst of the darkness. And our light is shining and is dispelling the darkness. We have repented of our national sins and we have begun to seek the Lord for revival and restoration in our land. Restoration in our land. And we are boldly declaring that America shall be saved. And I believe we're beginning to build some momentum in our prayers. While that's encouraging, we have to keep up the pressure against the forces of the enemy and believe God for a massive victory for our beloved United States of America. By the way, if you're listening on the podcast from another country, you can certainly use these tools to pray for your country and for your people. All right, with all that in mind, let's talk about some of the tools that the Lord told me were in our toolbox that we needed to use to pray more powerfully and more effectively for America and for her people. Number one, fasting and prayer. Number two, binding and loosing. Number three, prayer of agreement. Number four, the name of Jesus. Number five, the blood of Jesus. And number six, spirit-led prayer. And as I've said before, you can use these tools to pray for America from the macro to the micro perspective. You can pray for America and the Church of America and our leaders, political and spiritual, in a broad sense. And or you can pray for yourselves, your families, your church, your pastor, and your fellow saints. Same tools, just applied at the macro and the micro. So far, we've discussed fasting and prayer Binding and loosing, the prayer of agreement, and the name of Jesus. This morning, we're going to talk about the blood of Jesus and what it means to plead the blood of Jesus and how we can plead the blood of Jesus over America and over the people of America. You know, the blood of Jesus is something most Christians haven't thought a lot about and really don't understand that well. To be honest, I don't think any of us has a complete understanding of the power and the mystery of the blood of Jesus. So let's take a closer look at the blood 
starting at the dawn of mankind in the beginning. And you're going to see a common thread that there was an awareness that was given to mankind that in order for sins to be forgiven, innocent blood had to be shed. You find it in Adam's day. Adam and Eve had everything. They were perfectly created in the image of God the Father. In the garden paradise of Eden, they walked and talked with God, and their every need was met. There was no sin. There was no sickness. There was no poverty. There was no death. Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17. But God gave them a command concerning a tree in the garden. Here in verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And you know the story. Eve was tricked by the devil into partaking of that fruit, and then Adam joined in and ate from it as well. They sinned, they fell from grace, and they died spiritually. And the process of death began to corrupt their souls and their bodies. And eventually, after over 900 years, they died physically. Genesis 3, 7. After they took of the fruit, the verse here says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. I always, you know, get tickled when I read this because... I can't imagine that being really what you need to get the job done, you know. Cover yourself with fig leaves. Oh, that's a great idea. Genesis 3.21. So God took matters in his own hand. It says, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. He provided for them. Here we see that the Lord God introduced the concept of shedding of innocent blood to cover or atone for the sin of mankind. Think about it. Even though the animals were cursed because of Adam's sin, it wasn't their fault. They didn't do anything wrong. They were innocent. So innocent blood had to be shed in order to make coverings that got the job done for Adam and Eve. Amen. And those coverings, in my way of thinking, in a sense, covered their sin. And I'm certain that this principle was shown to them because they taught it to their children. Abel offered up a blood sacrifice that was accepted by God, and Cain offered up a fruit and grain sacrifice that was not accepted by God. Now, as you go further on in the Bible, you find out that grain offerings were eventually commanded by the law of Moses, but this is thousands of years before that. And the emphasis was on blood sacrifice. Amen? And you can tell by the words that God spoke to Cain after he was rejected that he had to have known the right thing to do. Genesis 4, 6, and 7. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Now, this is what I think the Lord was saying. I know Abel's a shepherd and you're a farmer, but an innocent blood sacrifice is required to atone for your sins. Do you see that? Fast forward to Noah. 
When Noah got off the ark, the first thing he did was offer animal sacrifices to atone for the sins of his family. If you read the story um, closely, you find out that he had animals two by two, male and female, so they could reproduce. But he also had other animals that he could use for blood sacrifice. All right. Genesis 8.20. Let me show it to to you in the Word. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Amen. Let's talk about Moses and the blood. After thousands of years, God spoke to Moses and he formalized the practice of blood sacrifice through the laws that were given to him. Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's very important to understand. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So when God breathed the breath of life into Adam, think about this. The life of God was carried throughout his body by the perfect blood that flowed through his perfect body. The life of God flowed through his veins because he had perfect blood and it nourished his perfect body. Amen? So when Adam sinned, his blood was poisoned and what once carried the life of God through his veins now carried sin and death. And that sin and death was passed through the bloodline of Adam to every human being that has ever lived since that day. It reminds me of something I say about racism. How can we be racist when we all have the same daddy and the same mama? You know? We all have the same blood. That's the important thing. All right, since the blood of all mankind had been tainted by sin and there was no man on earth who was truly innocent, truly free from sin... There was no man who could qualify to be the perfect sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. Revelation 13.8 refers to Jesus as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That word there is cosmos. It means the known universe. So Jesus in the mind and heart of God before, before the universe was created, he already had a plan that involved Jesus. Amen as the lamb slain before the foundation of the cosmos. Think about it. This means that God knew before he created the universe that evil would come as a result of wrong choices that angels and men would make. And he had a plan already prepared in his heart to send a man, unlike any other man, that would be the perfect sacrifice that would satisfy the demands of God's justice once and for all enable him to bring salvation to all mankind. It was decided that the Word of God, who existed in eternity with God as part of the Trinity, he would take on flesh, he would become a man, and be the perfect sacrifice required for the salvation of mankind. Can you imagine? God decided, I'm going to have to step in and intervene. I'm going to have to become a man and be the perfect sacrifice to save my man and my woman and all their descendants. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
So how did God do that? What are some of the mechanics? You know, these are kind of things that I think about. How did that work exactly? Well, first of all, God very cleverly designed human beings so that no blood ever passes from a mother to the baby in her womb. So it was not physiologically possible for Mary, the mother of Jesus, to pass her tainted blood to the son inside her womb. Because once the egg is fertilized, it becomes a human embryo which develops its own heart and its own blood supply, separate and distinct from the blood of the mother. Isn't God smart? But listen to the other side of the equation. The egg that became an embryo and eventually became Jesus could not have been fertilized by a man because a human father would have passed his blood type and the taint of sin through his DNA, through his genes, to that embryo. That's why God had to be Jesus' father, not a man, as was explained to Mary by the angel Gabriel. Luke chapter 1, 34 and 35. Then after he explained it to her, she had some questions. Huh? <laughs> then Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, listen to this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. God is going to be his Father. This brings me to a very important point because it illustrates just how special and just how powerful the blood of Jesus is. If the life is in the blood, listen to my logic here. If the life is in the blood and Jesus' blood came from God, then it was no ordinary blood. The very life of God was in the blood that was flowing through the veins of Jesus. The life of God was flowing through the veins of Jesus. When Jesus poured out his blood on the whipping post and on that cross, he poured out the very life of God for all mankind. Sorry, I tear up when I think about it. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he gathered up all his blood. He went into the heavenly holy of holies and he poured it all out on the mercy seat of heaven and he settled the sin question once and for all. Hebrews 9.22, let me show that to you in the word. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. That word there means freedom, liberty, deliverance, Pardon, forgiveness. I'll read it again. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without shedding of blood. There is no remission, freedom, liberty, deliverance, pardon, or forgiveness. So here in the book of Hebrews, we see that the type that was represented by all these animal sacrifices and the shedding of innocent blood that dated all the way back to Adam was fulfilled in Jesus Christ who offered his own blood once and for all 
unto God as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. You know, that, that is so profound. You really need to meditate on that sometime. Hebrews 9.12, King James, just says it the best. That's why I picked King James. It says, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Ooh, that's worth looking at in some other translations. The CEB translation says it really cool. He entered the holy of holies once for all by his own blood, not by the blood of goats or calves, securing our deliverance for all time. New Living Translation. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Now, I'm going to blow your mind. Most people don't think about this, but that means, if, if that's true, what we just read in three different translations, that means if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then your sins, past, present, and future, have been washed clean by the precious blood of Jesus. I'm going to say that again. It's so important. That means if you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then your sins, past, present, and future have been washed clean by the precious and powerful blood of Jesus. I had somebody say, well, the blood of Jesus cannot take care of future sin. And I said, if that's true, we're all lost. Because Jesus died and shed that blood almost 2,000 years ago. So if it doesn't cover future sins, we're all in trouble. Amen? Amen. All right. So with all this background in mind, what does it mean to plead the blood of Jesus? Is it a valid concept or is it just some old-time Pentecostal tradition that doesn't really mean much. Well, let me build my case for pleading the blood of Jesus by beginning with Romans chapter 5. We'll read verse 8 and 9. It says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. I'm going to read that again. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Did you get that? We've been justified by his blood and saved from wrath through Christ. To be justified means to be made righteous and holy, justified, never sinned. It's an easy way to remember it. To be justified means to be made righteous and holy, justified, never sinned. It is justified, never sinned. That's what justification means. Amen? To be saved from wrath means that you've been saved from all the wrath associated with being an unregenerate sinner. 
because now you're a born-again new creation in Christ. One more thing, the word translated as saved in Romans 5, 9 is the Greek word sozo, which we've talked about before, which means to deliver, to protect, to heal, to preserve, to save, to make whole. All of that is in that little word sozo. Sounds like a soft drink. Have a sozo. <laughs> You'll be delivered, protected, healed, preserved, saved, and made whole. Sozo Cola. All right. So put, putting it all together into one coherent statement. If you've made Jesus your Lord, you've been justified, delivered, protected, healed, preserved, safe from wrath, and made whole by the precious blood of Jesus. Amen. All right. So. The word plead means to contend for, to strive for, and it's actually most commonly used today in legal arenas. When you go to court and you're the defendant, the judge says, you've heard the charges against you. How do you plead? Guilty or not guilty? So to plead is to make your case to the judge. If you're not guilty, you plead not guilty. In our case, in the court of heaven, the verdict has already been rendered. We have been found innocent, not guilty, because of the blood of Jesus. We don't have to make our case to the judge. It's already been settled with him. But Satan and his band of outlaws, even though they've been defeated, they will still challenge us from time to time concerning what belongs to us as born-again, blood-washed children of God. And one of the ways we can enforce their defeat is by pleading the blood of Jesus. When the enemy comes against you with accusations or threatens you with physical harm, in effect, we can say to the enemy, the verdict has been rendered. I have been and I remain justified, delivered, protected, healed, preserved, saved from wrath, and made whole by exhibit A, in my case, the blood of Jesus. I plead the blood of Jesus. Now, you can say it any way you want to. You can say, I apply the blood. I appropriate the blood. I have what the blood brought for me. Or you can be old school like me and say, I plead the blood of Jesus. But the meaning is the same. You're appropriating the deliverance, the protection, the healing, the preservation, the salvation, the wholeness that was purchased for you by the precious blood of Jesus. Amen. I done preached myself happy, folks. I needed to hear this. We're close to the finish line. Not six more weeks. So how can we apply this truth in our prayers for America? Well, we can plead the blood of Jesus over America. We can appropriate the deliverance, the protection, the healing, the preservation, the salvation, and the wholeness that was brought to America with the precious and powerful blood of Jesus. So I'm going to end this relatively short but power-packed message with a prayer 
and we're going to plead the blood of Jesus over America. And what I'd ask you to do as I read this thing, just be in agreement with me. And at the end, when I say, and if you're in agreement, say, say amen with me. Amen. All right. Now, this is just a sample, but it's a good example, I think, of pleading the blood of Jesus. Heavenly Father, our nation is under attack. There is a war underway for the soul of America. But we declare that the victory is already ours, and we declare that America shall be saved. We say no weapon formed against us shall prosper, for the blood of Jesus is a protecting shield over the United States of America. We plead the blood over our infrastructure, over our institutions, over our people, and over our leaders. We plead the blood over the White House, over Congress, over the Supreme Court, and over every state government as well. We plead the blood of Jesus over the Church of America. We say the plans and purposes of the enemy against our government and against the church will be thwarted because of the blood of Jesus. Because of the blood, we believe that deliverance, protection, healing, preservation, salvation, and wholeness come to our great nation. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. If you're in agreement with me, say, Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. All right, we'll continue next week with the conclusion of our series on tools of prayer for America. Amen? Amen. We hope you enjoyed part five of Dr. Forrest's message, Tools of Prayer for America. If you are in the Wilmington area and are looking for a place to worship, come join us on Sunday at 10 a.m. for Coffee and Fellowship and 10.30 for Worship and Service. If you would like to learn more about us and hear more of Dr. Forrest's teachings, visit our website at gofaithlife.com. Also, visit and like our Facebook page at Faith Life Wilmington.